Welcome to Love Takes Action. I'm your host, Ellen Adair, and I have the privilege of speaking with people across the country who have faced adversity, conquered their fears, and in the process made unexpected and extraordinary impacts on their communities. Join me as we delve into these amazing stories and meet the people who are changing the world by putting love into action. Love Takes Action is brought to you by New York Life, helping people build better futures since 1845. Thank you for joining us today while we spend time with Katie Parsons, a writer currently working on a book, Next Generation Alzheimer's, in which she explores the disease primarily from the loved one's and caregiver's perspective. Something's really wrong. People think that Alzheimer's is losing your keys, but it's actually not knowing what to do with them. I can tell she feels safe, she feels loved, she feels cared for. The best thing you can do is ask how to help Making something 1% better in your lifetime is huge. Katie, it is such a pleasure to get to talk to you today. And there are so many things we could talk about, given your multi-hyphenate existence. I noticed on your website, you identify yourself as a writer, performer, and storyteller, which I certainly identify with as well, being a writer and an actor like you. And... I feel like storytelling is actually the basic function of the human brain, both as a kind of automatic output and also as its highest function. You know, I think we're all storytellers, even when we don't realize it. But I am going to start with your conscious choice in this regard. So my first question is, how did you become an author? Yeah, thanks. So I'm sure your story is a little bit similar. I've been writing stories since I was old enough to pick up a crayon. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother especially, often encouraged me to write stories for her. But I've always been drawn to stories about real life, whether that's incorporating real life into a fiction story, uh, blogging about being a parent, being a woman, being a human, uh, working from home, whatever that may be. A few years ago, I really wanted to do a little more research and start delving into longer form content, just as an evolution of my storytelling. And that's what led me to change from just a writer, blogger, journalist to wanting to become an author. With all of the different things that you're doing, you're sort of living a freelancer's life as a writer. Is that fair to say? That is very fair to say, yeah. (laughs) Well, again, I, I empathize. So how does that life work for you and for your family? I actually made the decision to freelance full-time or as you know, most freelancers know, more than full-time back in 2011. I was able to use some of my connections that I had made in journalism and launched my career as a freelance writer and editor. And eventually that evolved into you know, working on websites for companies, social media, things along those lines that in the past decade, a lot of companies have wanted to outsource. And so I sort of fit that bill And as far as performing, it was just a few years ago that I revisited uh, my life as a performer and have added that to the mix of projects that I'm working on as well. It's so cool. It sounds like your life sort of enables you to be home more, but I also think about how cool it is for your five kids to be able to see you doing all of these different things. My kids are just so happy I'm doing this 
to your point, I think we all can find reasons maybe that things don't fit. But thankfully, I have a very supportive family and friends and and they are fine with me being out late, if that means that I get to do something I really enjoy. Having set the scene, uh, as it were, that's just a, that's a storytelling metaphor for all my fellow nerds. Um, what we're here to focus on today is your mom and her Alzheimer's disease. So when did you realize that things were changing with your mom? This has been about 10 years in the making. It was around 2013 when my brothers and I have two brothers. Um, at the time, we're all in our 30s. started to notice that she was acting strange. Uh, my mom has a great sense of humor and she's very quirky. She's always been really good at like pointing out things she didn't do right, owning her mistakes. So it was like the quirkiness, but like elevated, you know, leaving, go to the store and coming back with nothing. And we'd be like, uh, like, where's the chicken you were going to get? And she'd be like, oh, ha, 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 I got so distracted. Silly me, I'm going to go get it. And Sina started with that, which does happen as people age. Uh, the problem was she was in her late 50s and it just seemed like these things were sort of compounding. And also, she's just a very kind person, and she was becoming very irritable very quickly. And that happened for a few years. There was a lot of blame on hormones, life changes, stress. Uh, so it was 2018 when my brothers and I finally confronted my dad because it seemed to be getting worse. And it wasn't until early 2019 that we were able to get her in to have some cognitive testing and to see a neurologist uh, have some blood work done, all the normal things that they do. And she was diagnosed in March of 2019 with moderate Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. I would say it started much earlier than the diagnosis. And I think it's very telling that by the time she was diagnosed, she was not in mild cognitive decline anymore. She was already in moderate on her way to severe. And whether we had gotten her in earlier or not, if that would have changed things, I'm not sure. That's part of, you know, my message is that we need better approaches and more treatments and more research. But of course, we all kind of live with that regret that, you know, hey, maybe if we had gotten her in five years before we did, we could have frozen the disease a little bit longer and, you know, had her with us cognitively a little bit longer. So for people who might not know, are there treatments that can help freeze the decline in that way? There are a few approved treatments, but not many. When my mom was diagnosed, there were three total. There's been another one in clinical trials that has been approved at this point. At that time, two of them treat the mild and one treats the moderate to severe. And sometimes you can do a combination of the medications. It really does depend on the person and their medication tolerance as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't necessarily freeze it for everyone. So her neurologist explained to me the particular medication that we started her on. He had heard from loved ones of others that they appeared to be getting better, quote unquote better, right? Because you never get better. You're never cured. At this point, we don't have that available to us. Yeah. Essentially, their symptoms were better. They were less irritable, less confused, happier, just able to sort of function in their everyday much better. So that was the path we took. Unfortunately, my mom had pretty severe side effects. Uh, her side effects were very bad headaches, 
unable to sleep, mm. bowel problems. They stuck with it for a few weeks to see if it would even out or help. And it didn't seem to be helping. And she was so miserable that in the end, the decision our family had to make was to not put her on dementia-specific medication, that to just sort of medicate the symptoms. So that looked like an antidepressant, a mood stabilizer, things like that that aren't specifically treating her disease at this point. Mm -hmm. But they are helping with her quality of life. And certainly they help with her caregivers. So for us, these medications that calm her actually seem to be also helping her disease plateau. Take us to the moment, and this might be backtracking just slightly, when the reality of the situation settled in. What questions did you ask yourself? I guess there's two moments, right? There's the moment where I realized what was going on, and then there's the moment where she was officially diagnosed. Mm. I live about 1,200 miles away from my parents. I live in Florida, so I am not a primary caregiver for my mom. Uh, I do a lot of secondary things. I make appointments. I make sure her caregivers are paid. I handle insurance so that my dad doesn't need to do all of that. And then I go visit a lot and I'll stay for a week at a time. Thankfully, freelancing allows me that. And I can just kind of relieve everyone when I come. But I've lived in Florida since 2011. And she used to come by herself. She'd fly, just help me with the kids, whatever she needed to do. Well, in 2014, I had my youngest daughter and my mom came maybe a month or two later and she was just a little bit off. She was very irritable. She kept asking when my dad was going to come, which was strange because he wasn't planning to come. But then she would have moments of complete clarity. So I, again, knew something was off, but also thought, well, she's somewhere else. She's not home. There's a lot of children here. Like, she's just disoriented. So she decided to go for a walk with my daughter one day, which she'd done many times before. And maybe like a half hour goes by. She had her strapped to her chest in like a baby sling mm. and she wasn't back. So I texted her. Didn't look like she read it. I called her phone and I heard it ringing in my house. So immediate panic washes over me. Why did I even like, you know, so I hop in my car I drive all the places they could possibly be. I'm driving probably for 10 minutes and don't see her. And I just happen to drive by a road in my neighborhood and I see her talking to someone and my baby's like on her chest. So I pull up and the woman in the driveway is like annoyed. She's like, oh, well, there you are. Like your mom's been calling you because some stranger, my mom had basically said, my daughter left me alone and I don't know where she lives. And so I got her in the car just with the baby still on her, you know, we lived a couple blocks away and she started yelling at me. I don't understand why you're making me your child. You know, it's just like a very odd conversation. Mm. At first, trying to rationalize like, mom, you wanted to leave and you didn't take your phone. And it was after I got home from that and like holding my baby, like, oh my goodness, that I said to my husband, I said, something's really wrong, really wrong. And I don't think she should be alone with any of the kids anymore. And I need to talk to my dad. So that was like the moment for me that it really happened. And then the diagnosis, of course, was hard, especially yeah. to hear she was not mild um, and on her way to severe. I felt not surprised, but I also felt a sense of urgency 
urgency in the moment. Like, what can we do? How can we help her? Immediately, her driver's license uh, was taken away. She took a driving test, but she failed it. Her phone was taken away. She doesn't carry money or credit cards anymore. But she didn't really notice or care. But just the knowledge that that independence was being taken away was really heavy on me. And so there was a sense of urgency to take care of her. And then, of course, as the months went by, immediately following the diagnosis, there was a sense of urgency for me for my own life. Gosh, like, I'm thinking I've got 100 years, but now my mom was probably 56 or 57 when she started. So now we're shrinking the time that potentially I could have to be cognitively functioning and do what I want to do, write books, perform, raise my children to adulthood safely. All these things really weighed on me. At that moment, I essentially just took an audit of my whole life. This took months, years. I'm still doing it. What will I be satisfied with when either my cognition is lost or my life is lost? What are those most important things? And then step two was looking at my schedule and saying, am I even doing these things? Most were like, I'll do that later. I'll do that when my kids are older. You know, that's authoring books, performing again, whatever it may be. And, you know, I, it's not that I disliked my life. I was happy with my life. I liked the work I was doing. But I just felt almost panic at the things I still needed to get done. And on a personal note, that was really what sort of evolved in me rather quickly. Was there anything else that continued to come up for you as you and your family processed what was happening? I think I reexamined my relationship with my mom uh, in a different way as well. Mm. Especially in the early days of her diagnosis, I didn't have a lot of like rosy memories of us. I was actually thinking of like the bad things for a while. We didn't have an estranged relationship. We didn't have a bad relationship. But growing up, we were not close. You know, when I was a senior in high school, I had my own job. I just like after school one day went and bought my prom dress. And I got home and she was like, well, I wanted to go. And I was like, you did? Into adulthood conversations her and I did have, thankfully, while we were still able to, I learned a little bit more about some trauma in her life as a child uh, and growing up uh, that I think led to maybe a little bit of distance that she had between me and her and my brothers, not abusive in any way, but just not super closeness and not a vulnerability to be able to be close to us, maybe the way that I envisioned, right, wanting Mm -hmm. to have. When I went to college, we didn't really talk on the phone. It wasn't until I became a mother, and I remember I took her out for a Mother's Day brunch. And this would have been, I think, about 2010. And we just had the best time. And I just remember that day feeling like, I feel like this is my friend. This is my peer. And then, you know, it was just a few years later that we didn't have that again. A lot of people will talk about, oh, all these great memories we had. And I grieve like the loss of that era that was just starting. Hmm. I'm thankful for it. But like, to me, it was like, this is a whole new, like several decades long um, time in our lives. Yay, finally, we've made it. (laughs) And I didn't know it would only be a few years. As you're absorbing all of these things, it must have been so hard to stay on task 
to make a plan in the, in the wake of that kind of discovery. So how did you begin to try to make a plan with your family? I think the very early days of a dementia diagnosis are pretty much everyone working with urgency and everyone sort of working together. I'll call this doctor. I'll check insurance. I'll take her here. I'll stay with her. I think it's actually harder as time goes by. Mm. I sound, we were sort of settled into, okay, this is the medication we're going to do. These are the people who are with her these days. This is the amount of time she'll go to the doctor and here's the things we're going to watch for. That it sort of became normal. There's nothing to do. Everything is settled. So now I just have to sit with this. And that's hard. Yeah. And what I was able to sort of do relatively quickly during that phase is connect with others, going through the same thing. That started as me just looking for information and sort of camaraderie and then sort of morphed into, well, can I actually interview you and record you? I'm going to work on a book about this. I'm going to work on a book about what we do know, what we don't, but I don't want it to just be me. Like my narrative can be in there. But what I want to show is that people with dementia suffer on different levels and families suffer on different levels. For all the ways it's the same, it's different. And until we're able to really talk about those things, we won't see more research. We won't see more happening to prevent dementia. Mm -hmm. I was able to take that sadness and say, okay, I need to take some more action and sort of morph into that and start writing my book. Just curious, does your family have a history of Alzheimer's? Yes. My grandmother, my mom's mom, so maternal side, did have Alzheimer's. She, it set in at the end of her life. She died at 78. And I think she was diagnosed around 75. So it was a little bit closer to an, uh, what we would consider maybe a normal age. I don't quite remember if she was showing symptoms before that or not, uh, but she was diagnosed. And then her mother was unofficially suffering, mm. never really got a diagnosis. So uh, another reason I feel the urgency, right? I'm seeing the women on that side, right down the line, all struggling with this. And it seems to be getting a little bit earlier each time. You were talking about your grandmother. Can you talk to us a little bit about what a normal diagnosis looks like and how much there is the possibility for deviation from that? In a nutshell, any symptoms, not just diagnoses, but symptoms to the end that it could be dementia that happened before age 65 is considered early onset. Anything above that is within a normal diagnosis range. So if it's early onset, typically there's something that has happened. In my mom's case, we're not really sure. We could say stress, but again, it wasn't any more stress than before. Yeah. It's really interesting to, to sort of explore all the different reasons it could be. But I think by the time a person is in dementia, uh, it's hard to pin down what exactly could have caused it. And from what I understand, it's also hard to pin down like how much time they have, how much time you have with them. Is that right? Yes, that is one of the most frustrating things. One of the first things I Googled upon her diagnosis and I typed in like the number on the scale that she was uh, for different uh, degrees of Alzheimer's was life expectancy. And it was all over. Mm. It was five years, 25 years. 
Uh, at first I thought, well, she's young, so maybe it's longer. But then I saw some posts, uh, actual articles and forums, people saying, well, my mom was, you know, 65 and by 68, she was gone. That's another thing. We just don't know how much time we have. This will bring us back to, I know, a moment that we had talked about a little bit before, but how did you come to the realization that you needed to write a book about Alzheimer's? I actually listened on audiobook uh, during the COVID-19 days on a walk, uh, a book by Ada Calhoun called Why We Can't Sleep. And the way that the audio was done on it was so lovely. It's a great book about the issues that women face um, in middle age and even a little younger. And sort of like Alzheimer's, how a lot of things don't get as much attention as they should, um, are under talked about so you don't know. And, and in general, just stuff that women deal with in, in middle age. And in it, she had little audio clips from her actual interviews. Mm. And I just found it so compelling. And it really inspired me because I was like, this is a different issue. But I think I would like to tell a story this way where I do research. I do talk about the facts, the stats, maybe include some experts, but... A lot of storytelling is done through real people that are going through this. And I pin that down to the children and grandchildren of Alzheimer's and dementia patients. So um, the children and grandchildren is where I come up with next generation Alzheimer's. It's not that I haven't spoken to caregivers, but I'm really trying to target my storytelling to people who do not have dementia right now and who are afraid of getting it. And they want answers or at least to delve into what we don't know and then maybe start brainstorming well maybe i should ask my doctor about this should i get genetic testing like how can i get ahead of this for myself and that's sort of what sparked me to start doing interviews and start putting it all into you know chapters and hopefully at some point an audiobook where i can use clips just like i heard there where you can actually hear people telling their stories yeah, because there's solace just being in community with other people who are going through the same thing that you are. And so obviously, one of the greatest ways for you to help that community is to serve them by writing a book. And also just something that is really important to me is not just pigeonholing Alzheimer's and dementia into the stereotypes that we know, but really having this nuanced conversation and stories that aren't always, oh, she just forgets everybody's names or um, it's so sad all the time because it's not sad all the time. Like the overarching issue is, but I have so much fun with my mom now. Mm. So she'll just laugh. She just likes, we'll go to the restaurant. She just likes to read the words on the menu. She reads them backward. We all laugh. I'm hearing stories like that from others. They're like, oh yeah, like, those were some of the best times I ever spent with my mother or my aunt or my father or my grandfather. Uh, so really breaking those stereotypes. And someone I interviewed really put it perfectly. She said, people think that Alzheimer's is losing your keys. Like, where did I put my keys? But it's actually holding your keys in your hand and not knowing what to do with them. What are some of the ways that you've seen your mother not know what to do with her keys? So in the early days, it would be a lot of driving, for example. If you would drive with her, this was before the diagnosis and not being able to drive anymore, she would just like sit at stop signs for like a really long time. 
almost as if she was confusing it with a stoplight. Mm. Well, you go now. And her to be like, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Little things like that. Uh, certainly uh, not remembering who we are, uh, but feeling the aura of us. You know, I cannot see her for two or three months and I'll show up and she won't know why I'm there or who I am, but she'll sit right down with me and hold my hand. She'll get in a car with me without asking questions. Uh, she'll have a meal with me without being like, where's whoever and who are you? Because um, she feels that that's a safe thing. Hmm. I was sitting in my parents' living room and just out of nowhere, she walks over to me and she said, I just want to say thank you. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and you're not supposed to ask people with Alzheimer's necessarily questions back, but instinct, I was like, oh, what, what are you thanking me for? And she's like, I don't know. I just, I just know I need to thank you. And then she just walked away. So, I mean, that was a beautiful moment, obviously. Um, and I was like, hey, well, she just, something in her mind triggered her to be like, that person, I need to go say thank you. Mm. And it was just, it was lovely. But of course, I wish I knew what it was for, but <laughs> I'll, I'll take I'll take what I could get. Has there, has there been any joy in this journey for you? Absolutely. Much more joy in this journey than I ever expected. We have a lot of fun together uh -huh. when I'm there. She's down for whatever. And obviously, this, this is hard for the caregivers. But my dad is, like, happy. Like, he'll say that. He's like, I'm happy. Like, I have help. She's safe. He, he doesn't just keep her in. He takes her around. They do the rounds. They go to the Moose Lodge, you know, whatever. He's adapted. And I'm sure I know that there are hard days. But he overall is like, this is fine. Like, this is just who we are now. And I'm happy as can be. And so... I think that there is some joy. There's a lot of laughter. I'm curious if there are other ways that you've built this community other than writing the book. So in writing the book, I have used my social media platforms, uh, mostly Instagram, but also my Facebook uh, and even my LinkedIn to sort of say, hey, I'm writing a book. If you want to be interviewed or you know someone who should have them fill out this form, I'll contact them. And really, that's for the book. But what has happened in the process is that I've been able to meet a lot of other people doing work in the fields of dementia. Uh, some experts, and by experts, I mean medical experts, people actually doing medical research. And some, you know, caregivers, children of patients with Alzheimer's or dementia. Basically, my circle has been able to really expand hmm. to the point that now I have a lot of people who follow me, uh, again, particularly on Instagram, for information. So even though the book itself isn't complete, it's already triggered so many conversations and so many people talking to each other and seeking out information. And that makes me really happy because that's a sense of community right there, uh, people who can be vulnerable with each other and learn from each other. And I learn from all of them too. So it's it's a wonderful bonus. And uh, that's been part of this process that I didn't necessarily predict. That's been really wonderful to experience. Mm, yeah, it sounds like, you know, seeds have already been planted. I think very often we think, oh, you know, we don't try something because we don't see 
the change happening completely, but that there is so much virtue in like, how can I make this one thing 1% better is is a very worthy aim because that's 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 how the seeds get planted. So I guess uh, my last question for this part of the interview is, in the end, what have you gained through all of this experience with your mother and with the book? I've definitely gained uh, an adjusted perspective on my life, Uh, not just a lifespan where I'm physically here, but a lifespan where I'm cognitively able to accomplish my goals. And that often that window is shorter than your lifespan. And if it's not, you're a very, very lucky, blessed person. Um, So to really view it as there is a finite amount of time, but to not panic about that either. Now, as you mentioned earlier, making something 1% better or half of a percent better um, in your lifetime is huge because that's going to continue on and and eventually it's going to make a huge difference. Yeah, completely. We can only get everything done by doing one thing at one time. <laughs> yes. So we're going to finish with a quick five-question questionnaire. So my first question is, why do you do what you do? I do what I do because telling each other's stories to each other or for each other is the best way to sort of connect and engage. So my second question is, looking back to the diagnosis moment, what do you wish you knew then? I wish that I knew that Alzheimer's kills people. That sounds really simple, but I really did just think that it was something that happened to you and then you just lived out the rest of your life until something else killed you. But the truth is, Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, they're the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S. What recommendations do you have for people to find joy in a process like the one that you've gone through? The times that I've just sat with her and let her lead, whether that's complete silence, whether that's her talking about something and me just listening or chiming in here and there, um, those are the moments that I've been able to really connect and that I can tell she feels safe, she feels loved, she feels cared for. And there's a lot of satisfaction and joy in that. So if you can find a way to just be with your loved one and just meet them where they are, you're going to be able to find a lot more joy and connection in this journey. What is a lesson that you can pass forward because of your research or experiences? The best thing you can do is ask how to help, not give advice or, or tell. Instead of showing up and being like, here's what we're doing, um, I, I ask, how, how can I be most helpful when I'm there next week? What can I go do? Should I just sit with mom? Should I take her to the mall? Do you need groceries? Like, you tell me. Do you have a motto? Ooh. <laughs> wow. What a good question. Um, I would say probably the one, and I've had this one for maybe 20 plus years, uh, no day but today. I'm familiar with the source material, yes. Which sounds kind of silly because I've talked about like things I'm planning for the future. But again, I, I really can't predict that. I can't predict what I'm doing is what's going to happen with any of it, what trajectory it's going to take. So you just have to do 
do the one thing or two things or whatever it is right now and do it in good faith and do what aligns with you and your mission and your authenticity and believe that it's go the way that it should. Yeah. I mean, a through line through so many of the things that you've said is just the value of the present moment. And, you know, that's a thing that that I think sometimes people think sounds a little cliche, but it's only cliche because it is always true and because it is the most important thing. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much for talking to us, Katie. Um, you are incredibly well-spoken and I have learned so much from you and I really appreciate you giving us your time. Well, good, good. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Love Takes Action. If you like what you hear, we invite you to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, add your comments, and share with your friends and family. It's a chance to celebrate the voices of our inspiring guests and their wonderful stories. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or visit our website at newyorklife.com. Love Takes Action is brought to you by New York Life and is for general informational purposes only. References to any financial products or strategies are solely incidental and may not be construed as a solicitation. The views and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the guests and hosts. They do not necessarily represent the opinions or viewpoints of New York Life Insurance Company or its subsidiaries.